What can we entrepreneurs learn from a long and successful rock and roll career? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, here's the question. How are we dark horses? You know, the ones everyone is betting against, the ones they don't expect to win, place, or even show on the track, and they'll even laugh on us when we talk about trying. How do we show the world our greatness and triumph? Well, that's the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. This is The Dark Horse Entrepreneur. My name is Tracy Brinkman. What is up? What is up? What the hell is up, my Dark Horse friends and family? Welcome back to your weekly dose of rock and roll learning. I'm your Dark Horse host, Tracy Brinkman, and you, well, that, my friend, is infinitely more important. You are... Yeah, you're a driven entrepreneur or one in the making. Either way, you're here because you're ready to start, restart, kickstart, or just start leveling up with some great marketing, personal, or business results in order to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. Man, do we have a rockin' big episode for you today. Today, Kenny Lee Lewis. Yeah, the man, the myth himself, the guitarist from the Steve Miller Band. He's going to be sharing things about honing your craft, learning your craft, learning from pirates, and why those cuts in the diamond of your life and your business are so very much important to making you shine. Plus, I'm going to let you in on next week's interview episode guest who has helped over 1,000 clients build in excess of $1.4 billion with a B in combined wealth. What? This guy's fire. As per usual, the Dark Horse Corrals are chock full of personal business and marketing G-O-L-D spilling from every corner of the Dark Horse Entrepreneur HQ. So let's get to the starting gates and go. All right, my Dark Horse friends and family, today's guest is none other than the man himself, Kenny Lee Lewis. Now, for the few of you that do not know, Kenny has been a regular touring member, producer, and writer for the Steve Miller Band since 1982. He's an accomplished studio guitarist and bassist and has been one for over 45 years. A few of Kenny's other credits include Bonnie Raitt, Eddie Money, Dave Mason, Peter Preston, Peter Frampton, excuse me, Billy Preston, Peter Frampton, Boss Skaggs, Brian Wilson, and Steve Sills. Kenny's wide range of musical styles range from musical ballads, blues, hard rock, reggae, and even Latin. When he's not touring or recording, Kenny enjoys taking musical, uh, rewarding musical excursions when doing album projects, movie projects, and television composing, or even performing with friends. Most recently, Kenny has gotten into the digital entrepreneurial space with his own online guitar instructional membership course called Fret Friends, F-R-E-T-F-R-E-N-Z dot com. He'll share a bit about that with us later. This is where you can master guitar and more with Kenny Lee Lewis of the Steve Miller Band. All right, Kenny, my man, welcome to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur, man. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Really appreciate it. I definitely appreciate. Now you're still uh, you're still out there on the West Coast in California, aren't you? Yep, we're in the Central Coast wine country, which is halfway in between L.A. and San Francisco. On uh, the coast. I, I know it well. Uh, I used uh, my dad when he retired from the military. We settled in Southern California, so I was I was down there just a little bit north of Mickey's house, and uh, my wife. 
uh, my now wife is uh, from the the Bay Area, so I know that stretch of road that you're you're, you're talking about between there. But uh, I, I wanted to step back for a minute and uh, get maybe the cliff notes of your journey because I know there's going to be a, a few folks that are going to like who's this Kenny Lee Lewis guy. I know who you are, big fan from way back in the day to current, but you know, there's probably a, a handful of folks out there that are a little younger than us, right? <laughs> that might not know your uh, awesome career. So if you could just give us the cliff notes and we'll just go from there. Okay. Well, I was born in, in Los Angeles uh, in Pasadena in 1954. Um, my dad was a big band enthusiast. He was 4F during the war, so he got to stay in town when all the big bands were playing. And my mom and him, after they built bombers at Lockheed all day long, would go out and do some jitterbugging, you know, with some swing and stuff. And, uh, you know, he always had like either a gramophone or later, of course, a stereo console in the house. And he was always playing swing band, big band music. So I grew up kind of bopping around to swing all my life as a kid. I was the youngest of three. And uh, we moved to Sacramento about 1960 because he uh, worked at the state and he got a promotion. So we went up there, which was a really nice upbringing. I'm being up around the mountains and, you know, Shasta and Tahoe. And I became a Boy Scout and YMCA, all that, you know. But eventually we got invaded by England and my sister became a Beatle maniac. My brother and sister were always folkies. They were listening to Dylan and Ian and Sylvia and the Kingston Trio and the Brothers Four and all that stuff way early. And they were always performing for our family functions. But I was six years younger and I was too small to get my hand around a guitar. So I just had to sit over in the corner and sulk while they got all the attention. (laughs) Eventually, I borrowed a ukulele from my aunt who was living over in Berkeley in the Bay Area. And uh, I bought a book and I taught myself how to play ukulele at about seven, eight years old. And I used to entertain the family a little bit playing old black spirituals that were in this ukulele book by Stephen Foster and stuff. It was pretty funny. And, uh, you know, eventually played clarinet, borrowed a clarinet from another aunt, you know, whose son wasn't using it and got in band, learned how to read music a bit, fell away from that. Then around the sixth grade, my hand, when it got big enough to get around that, that big giant Sears silver tone guitar my brother had <laughs> uh, I started playing the Peter Paul and Mary uh, thing and then of course like I just mentioned the English invasion hit Beatles you know and then the Kinks and the Stones and the Yardbirds and you know I mean I, I was just overwhelmed with all these electric guitars of course I was a Beach Boy fan too prior and uh, I uh, finally borrowed an electric guitar and uh, my friend next door had one as well uh, and we went down into his bomb shelter, uh-huh. he had a Cold War bomb shelter, and we spent the whole summer of 1966 down in that bomb shelter, sleeping overnight down there, cranking the, the air filter every once in a while, make sure we didn't suffocate. <laughs> blasted our guitars and had a little 45 record player down there. We just played along with records, and that's when I learned how to play uh, electric guitar, which was uh, that summer of 66. And then, of course, Cream, Hendrix, Zeppelin. I mean, all those bands came out, and I was just freaking out. Being up in Northern California, the first pirate radio station, uh, KS, KSFO, or I think it was, uh, or no, KSAN. KSAN was uh, Tom Donahue. That was coming up to Delta, so I started hearing the first pirate radio music, you know, of a uh, killer mm. band. And, you know, uh, I was getting uh, the real blues stuff, you know, Muddy Waters. and. Yeah. 
able to shine. I never heard any of that stuff because the AM radio format in those days. I mean, you got, you know, the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys and the Beatles. That was about it, you know. Right. And, you know, Herman's Hermits. <laughs> you know, but we never got to hear Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf. They just weren't playing that stuff on the radio. So I got turned on to all that through the pirate radio station. And then I fell in love with, uh, you know, that whole golden era of that Fillmore area era. And I was still pretty young. I was only about, you know, 12 or 13 when that was starting to hit. But boy, was I hooked. And uh, I just kept practicing and, you know, and eventually got in bands and had my own bands. And even at the, by the end of junior high, I was, I was playing gigs and at, at 14, 15 years old, you know, uh, doing battle of the bands, whatever. And so I uh, went to, to the high school system there. Uh, my first year in college, started to learn how to read, playing in jazz bands. Uh, the drummer that was in my high school band had a family called the Perry family. And they all lived in Los Angeles, uh, and they were all in the music business. And they sort of like grandfathered me in with a lot of uh, opportunities to come down and sit in on sessions, at re- recording sessions, and told me about the industry and the business, what I needed to do, and learning how to read notation. And uh, eventually got into CSUN, which had a great music program. But I was a small fish by then. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I auditioned for the big band, there was like a hundred great guitar players who were all about my age now. <laughs> in there with like L4s and L5s and they could read fly shit and they could play all that stuff like immediately and uh, I didn't get in the band so I got my feelings hurt so I joined a band and so at 18 I went on the road playing at steakhouses with a California copy rock man got back to town after about six months brought a girl back with me got an apartment started getting in bands and stuff and started working my way up the food chain you know got a job at a guitar amplifier corporation and then Eventually met my now wife, who was then my employer, who hired me to play bass with her. Her name is Diane Steinberg. And she she had a second album she was doing on ABC Dunhill. And she brought me in as a bass player. And her musicians were like all the guys in Toto, Jeff Picaro, and you know, Jake Graydon, and you know, the, you know, uh, you know, um Mar- uh, uh, D- Marty, uh, not Marty Page, that's his dad. David Page. Thank you. David <laughs> and they liked my playing and they started introducing me to other people. And before long, I was doing a lot of recording sessions. So I was pretty much a session player at that point. And that was from about 1976 through about 1980. So that whole era for about four years, I was doing a lot of session right up until the time I met Steve in 81. And by then I was already trying to get my own record deals. I'd already had three records and he was looking for material and I had a bunch of demos that I gave to him that he liked through his drummer at that time was Gary Malibu, who had played on all of Steve's hits. And through that connection, uh, he picked eight songs of which I co-wrote three that got on the Abracadabra album, which sold 5 million copies. So that kind of brings you up to date from Sacramento up until me and Steve. Right. Phew. That's oh, yeah. uh, a... I think well, obviously, I mean, as, as you mentioned, you you started off with a, a musically inclined family, and that just pushed you. Um, when I hear into, well, first off, because your little hands, the ukulele, that was kind of cool. I I would probably would have grabbed some drumsticks at that point and just to do something, right? <laughs> In the house, my dad did play drums, so I did bang around the drums as well. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. I was uh, back in in my, my high school days. I. 
I toyed with the, uh, well, I say toy, I picked up and learned the, uh, the guitar. And, you know, for me, that would have been the late seventies, early eighties, you know, we're talking about, you know, the Motley Crues were coming up and, and what have you. And it was that all that fast playing and, you know, um, Eddie Van Halen and his style was was all the rave and you know if you were the lead guitar you got all the girls and okay I'll be the lead guitar guy but uh, I have since learned that I love the drums but it's the music right whatever you're playing man it's it's that music yeah well I mean like I said I, I got to bang around the drums a little bit but that as you just said as well if you're up front, if you're playing the guitar, you're meeting girls. And I wanted to meet girls. And that's why I pursued that. Because I was kind of shy. I was the baby of the family. My brother and sister were already gone married. And I was all by myself. And I was looking for attention, you know. And so, yeah, you know, the guitar brought that into my sphere. Nice. Nice. Oh, and, and, you know, obviously connected you with your now wife, still wife, right? Yeah. We've been together for 44 years. And. Like I said, she hired me as her bass player, and we became friends, and then we started co-writing the songs, and then that led up to that second album I just mentioned, where I actually had co-writes while I was playing bass on that record as well. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I can remember the Abracadabra album when it came out, and I was listening probably to Steve and the Steve Miller Band and his stuff, like probably two albums before that, and you had some... You had some credits on those albums before you were officially with the band, didn't you? No, I didn't. I didn't get any credits until the Abracadabra. Okay, Abracadabra. Okay, good. All right. But prior to me meeting him, most of them, Abracadabra mm -hmm. was a big hit for him, but it was his last big hit. He mm -hmm. hasn't hit since then. But yeah. the record, and that's the one I came in on. That was kind of a nice ride to be having a number one hit record as a project, which is cool. And I had the flip side of the single and I had the second single on the record. And, you know, it was really exciting. I mean, I just, to, to go from the studio scene into the pop rock scene was just like, you know, I was like idyllic because I really wanted to just be a studio player, but I achieved that. And I was making a good living at that. And then I just kicked it up a notch by getting in a rock band and touring the world with a number one hit record. So that was was that uh, was that a tough decision? Because you you were like you just kind of mentioned you were doing pretty good being a a session guitarist. Yeah, and I'd already had th three records that I had done at, with bands where I was a singer and a writer, but none of them had any hits. And so when Steve came along and took our songs to put on Abracadabra, and when he asked me to join, that was a tough decision because I had a lot of big contractors, Bill Conti. I was playing on, you know, Rocky movie soundtracks and commercials and a lot of other artist records and things. And, and uh, I was, I was doing pretty good. I was double scale, union scale. And mm -hmm. uh, I had to kind of, I turned to my fiance, of course, Diane at the time. And I just said, well, what do you think? She says, well, she goes, you've done three records, you know, and you, you gave it a good shot. Here's, you've always wanted to promote your own material and go on the road. Here's a way to do it, but you'll just be letting this guy, Steve Miller, be the singer. And he already has had hits. So what's wrong with that? You know, right. And it was like kind of a no brainer. And of course, when I came back off the road that year in 82, Nathan East had taken all my guitar, you know, my bass, you know, client sessions because he was great and he came up from San Diego. And uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't get all those contractors to get back behind me because, you know, you're part of a team when you're a studio musician and you're working for a contractor that, that wants to have that team he works with available 24-7 mm -hmm. on an hour 
And if you're going on the road with a rock band, you're not reliable. So that's how I lost. Okay. And so <laughs> it was a tough decision. But then Diane just said, well, you know, you're trying to promote your own stuff. Uh, go on out and work for him and have him sing everything. And you'll still be making the money. You got the songs on there and he's paying you to play. What's wrong with that? What's you wrong know? with that? Sounds like and, a win-win. <laughs> in hindsight, it was actually a really good decision because eventually all those studio jobs dried up for everyone. Mm. You know, So there's only a handful of guys in LA that still can make a living playing on, you know, recordings like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, computerized, everything's sampled now. Uh, and there's very little in the business now, like, you know, I mean, there's just not as many sessions as there used to be. Um, a handful of guys. It used to be hundreds and hundreds of guys. Now it's just a handful of guys, you know, that get the calls. And it just dried up. So now that the, the, the classic rock radio format has kind of fueled this classic rock touring business, we've been doing pretty well just going out and touring every year and making a pretty good living doing that. Nice. Nice. And do you, you're, I know you were mentioning that you're hopefully you're going to get back out on tour starting what, like next month, isn't it? Yeah, we've been out of work for about 15 months. Mm. And, uh, you know, we didn't think it was going to be that long, but it sure did. So, you know, I had to like, you know, kind of reinvent myself. Uh, I had mentioned that I have a, a teaching website called Fret Friends, F-R-E-T-F-R-E-N-Z.com that I just put out now, which is, you know, my lesson masterclass series now. And I'm promote, promoting that right now. And I use my YouTube channel, Kenny Lewis on YouTube, Fred Friends, to do free offerings with celebrities and, you know, entertaining little snippets and that kind of show techniques and stuff. But it's more like just for entertainment for like, you know, 15, 25 minutes in that range and uh, hopefully draw people over to the, the lessons from there. So that's the kind of stuff I've been working on. Bought a new computer, you know, this one here. Uh, <laughs> cool switches, you know, I can do all kinds of weird things with my with my OBS and everything. So, I mean, I'm, I'm learning the tech part of it. Mm-hmm. I've been a little weak on the internet part of it, my tech skills. My tech skills were more in the analog tape recording industry, you know. Right. And I had to kind of put that into the digital world. And that's about as far as I got. And then all this internet stuff was kind of like, oh my God, you're going to be kidding me. Now I got to learn that. I just want to go out and work on my garden, you know. So, you know, that's, it's kind of where I've been trying to catch up. So, but yeah, that's, that's what's been going on, but we are going to start working again next month. We got a couple of corporates coming up. Uh, we just got another gig in September. We just booked, we're trying to surround that with some more gigs. So I would say by fall, we're probably going to be doing about a dozen gigs this year. You know, I'm thinking, which isn't a lot, but at least it's getting us back into the pool. Yeah. And then 2022 is when we'll, we'll probably book a full blown summer tour. Nice. Well, God willing, if the river don't rise, right? I'm I'm hopeful because I tell you what, the my whole family, my wife and my daughter, who's still in the house with us, uh, that's how we spend our springs and summers, right? Is going to festivals and going to see band tours, and I mean, we'll 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 go to one of our favorite bands in multiple states. I know when when Five Finger was touring around here before COVID, we went and saw them probably five times in the same year, uh, just in different locations because it's just, uh, I love that live music energy. It's, you, there's nothing like it. I'm sure you could attest to that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, become a church. <laughs> uh, right? That, that's a great way to put it. 
And now I, I was uh, I was digging around to, to look at, to make sure I had some of the cool things. And I noticed two things I didn't know about you as I was uh, rooting around in your past. One is, and correct me if I get it wrong, you were the manager at the Guitar Center, that the iconic Guitar Center there in Hollywood, weren't you? You're now listening to-, to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. I became the sales manager. I wasn't the store manager, but I became the sales manager, which wasn't really fun because you got to kind of be a, a son of a bitch and kick everybody's ass all the time. Uh-huh. And I don't really like that. I don't like being more of a nice, fun guy. So they put me into artist relations. And so I started working with Dave Weiderman upstairs, who was the guy that actually invented the rock walkout in front of the place there. And that was really fun. And I was able to be a go-between between all the big artists uh, in the industry and that store, because that was our, our flagship store that we would ship out a lot of stuff and even do rentals, you know, for, for videos and, you know, live gigs and stuff. And everything. Mm-hmm. So I, the go between, cause I was an artist myself between sales. Cause Steve took four years off. He, uh, he right after the millennium, he, he got disillusioned with the industry. Napster was hitting real big. Uh, he just, he didn't like SFX, which was the company that was prior to live nation. Uh, kind of dictating to him who he could have as an opening act and how much tickets were going to be, blah, 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 parking. He just got tired of it all. And he just quit for about four years. So when that happened, I had to reinvent myself again. And so what I did is I went and I became a manager at Guitar Center. I started at Sherman Oaks and then I went to uh, Palmdale and I turned that store from number, it was the worst store in the chain. By the time I left, it was the number one store in the chain. And then, they headhunted me and brought me into Hollywood, and that's when I went sideways and got into artist relations, got my ponytail back, and started, you know, jeans again. Because, you know, for a while there, I was wearing, like, suits and stuff. And oh, my goodness. <laughs> be the corporate guy, right? And, uh, but it was it was an experience. But, yeah, I, I did the Guitar Center thing for about almost eight years. Nice. Now, when you say artist relations, you're you're – Help me understand what it was you were doing. I know it had to be a pretty cool. You know, I get a call from Def Leppard or I get a call from, you know, uh, Green Day or, you know, Cher. It could be anybody. Yeah. And I have their credit card in my laptop and I could use that credit card and ship them whatever gear they needed anywhere in the world. And all they would do is just call and say, hey, give me a blah, 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 blah. And I got to have my demand. Or, or, their, or, you know, maybe it was a road manager or their, their personal manager. Mm-hmm like that you know it wasn't always the artist but sometimes the artist would call and uh then we all said billing accounts which meant that if they had an account started that had an amex or something attached to it we could send them stuff without even making a payment just because we had their card on file we could just charge them later you know what i mean mm-hmm. that was the kind of stuff i was doing in artist relations and then of course you know if they came to the store you know i'd take them upstairs i'd get them a little drink we, you know, we keep them out of the, off the floor. If they wanted a vintage guitar to, to, to try, I'd go down and get it and bring it up to them. And we had our own private offices upstairs. That was in Hollywood. Nice. Kind of a white glove service, it sounds like, for those uh, those upper echelon artists. You know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Courtney Love, you know, came in one day and she lit up a cigarette and was sitting on an amp in the front, you know, and I said, yes, it's Courtney, you can't smoke any. She goes, you know, you're not going to be kidding me. I spent tons of money here. I said, Robin, I have to ask you to go outside. I had to kick her out of the place. Uh, Zach Wilde came up. Uh, I asked him if he wanted, uh, we didn't allow alcohol in there, but I asked him if he wanted some coffee. Because now I brought my own drink. And he reaches in his pocket. He's got a fully chilled, open bottle of Heineken beer in his pocket. 
his overalls and he pulls it out and starts drinking. <laughs> I said, you're not going to be drinking that in here. I said, get rid of it. You know, come on. You know, it was that kind of stuff. It was pretty funny. That's but, awesome. Yeah, but it was funny, you know. Or or, or we'd be doing a uh, or we'd be doing a, a rock walk thing for you know Randy Rhodes or something out front, and Ingvi Malmsteen would be there, and we'd have food, of course, because it's kind of a party. And he'd be eating all the Swedish meatballs and be hogging them all. And I'd go and I'd say, Ingvi, stop eating all the Swedish meatballs. Leave some, all right? Come on. You uh, you had. <laughs> it sounds like you have you have great content for a memoirs book if you wanted to put one together, right? Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> now the other the, the the other thing I saw was uh, you were actually, I guess the phrase would be invented musical parts during your some point in your career. Did I get that right? You were you were working on musical components or maybe instrument components on a bass. Probably maybe it was a bass guitar or some guitar components that are still in use these days. Oh, you're talking about gear. Yes, gear. Components. I didn't know what you meant. You know, yeah. yeah, I uh, started out with uh, Schechter Guitars in 1974, which is a pretty famous company. Anybody who's a guitar player out there has probably played a Schechter at one point. Mm -hmm. We started the parts business first. We were building pickups. Uh, I was doing a guitar amp before that, but that amp never took off. It was called a Delta. It was a kind of experimental thing. But out of that company... We moved money sideways and met Dave Schechter, and we started the parts business. And I started building pickups and making uh, pickup assemblies, and then eventually whole guitars with Dave from 74 through about 76. For about two years, I did that. And eventually, I trained a guy named Tom Anderson to take my place. And then, of course, Tom Anderson eventually made his own guitars as well. And then eventually, I got, and then on another break, when Miller went on a kind of a hiatus again from about 87 to about 93, uh, I was working for JBL Harmon and uh, we had a guitar amp company called Rivera. And I was uh, helping with that line uh, with Paul Rivera and Jack Sonny, who had been in the Dire Straits, but they had kind of gone by the wayside at rhythm section. So we were two rock and roll star or orphans <laughs> that had mindset. And we were selling guitar amps to the MI industry uh, through JBL Harmon, who was the parent company. And, and so, yeah, I, I've been, I had my foot into some of the, uh, some stuff. And then, and then JBL proper hired my band to go out and sell all their gear, all the Harmon gear uh, in 1990, 91, I think it was. We took a rhythm section on the road and went all over the country and we would play a show. And while we were playing the show, uh, JBL representatives would be training everybody on monitors, live sound, recording. I mean, everything when we were playing, they'd be, they'd have a, a truck on the side and they'd be showing, they'd be doing like a clinic, you know, for salespeople on how to do all the aspects, all the aspects of recording and live and uh, music business and all the gear that they sold along that line. And so we were kind of the, uh, uh, the guinea pig band. And that was my band with uh, Scotty Page from Pink Floyd. And we had Steve Lukather as a guest guitar player. And we had the Tower of Power horn section. And that was my band. Uh, it was called the Cold Cuts. And uh, eventually we turned it into a band called the Hang Dynasty. And that also became a house band or with the China Club in Hollywood in the 90s as well. So that was another time I was selling gear with for JBL. And we were selling everything. I mean, speakers, and, you know, our outboard gear, compressor, limbers, microphones, because they owned AKG. URI, Seinhauser. I mean, they owned everything. It was great. Wow. So 
So yeah, I've been involved in that end of the industry as well. It sounds like one of the uh, repeating themes uh, across your life has probably been the, I don't know if you want to say reinventing or if it's just inventing, right? Okay, here comes this part of, my, here comes a turn in my life or in my career or in the business for that matter. I'm sure you've seen a number of turns and it's like, okay, time to invent something here or reinvent so that I can continue on. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I liken it to the way a diamond is developed. A diamond is developed under a lot of pressure and a lot of heat in the center of the earth. And it becomes stressed in order for it to get hardened. And then after it gets hardened, in order for it to be beautiful, it has to have a lot of different facets. And mm-hmm. each of those facets that you cut is a part of what becomes the brilliance that makes it shine and be noticed in either the world or it could be in the business world. Who knows? Right. But you have all those different facets going for you in order for it to be complete. Otherwise, you just have this dull looking rock that doesn't do anything. And so all the different things that I've learned in the music business to survive are the cuts that are in my diamond that have helped me be able to be you know, noticed. And right now, the final facet is online you know, social media presence. You know, because that is my weakest link because I'm old school and I'm having to catch up with all these young folks that grew up with gaming and those computers like the back of their hand. Right. I didn't grow up that way. I grew up with a, you know, a regular phone with a rotary dial and an electric guitar through a tube amp with technology that came from Thomas Edison. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it, and it and it seems like uh, here in the past, let's say even decade, that the speed of technology is ever it's like compounding. Like I mean, I can remember when you know probably you and I were both in our teens, and you know that first computer comes on to the to you know to the presence, and you're like, oh, that's cool, you know. And then it's like seven years before it's in everyone's home, and then it seemed like it was two years. It's in a phone, and and then one year, and the, it's the Apple iPhone. And like every two months, some new technology piece is coming along. It's like I can't even keep up. No, and then, and then it, it, it stalemate. It's kind of stagnates you from going out and buying the stuff. You can think, well, maybe I should wait for the next model. You know, and it's like, oh, you got to jump in because. <laughs> Otherwise, you get left behind. You know, yeah. so I had to learn that. that it took me a long time to buy a computer. It took me a long time to buy a cell phone. You know, I mean, it just took me forever. You know, I was going, which one and what features and should I wait till next year? And nah, you got to get in. You know, and uh, that's the thing is that you, if you wait on the side of the river and everything else is passing you by. Eventually, there's not going to be anything coming down the river anymore. You know, so you have to you have to jump on board. You have to get on board, and it's it's it it's, takes a little bit of courage in order to do that yeah it does a little uh yeah a little courage <laughs> that's a good that's a nice way to say it well uh, great where you get left behind you know you get to watch everyone else having fun on their new computers and their new phones what's up with that yeah so okay so you've got the uh the fret friends is that right he said that and i say that right f-r-e-t-f-r-e-n-z.com guitar f-r-e-t friends f-r-e-n-c is in zebra right that's the only way i can get the dot com because there's a lot of red friends so uh fredfriends.com that's my debut website and then of course if you go to my youtube channel just kenny lee lewis on youtube uh i have a lot of free master classes there and i'm just about ready to start doing a series with a bunch of celebrities 
with Zoom. We'll have split screen. We'll be talking just like you and I are talking here, but we'll be playing a little bit and we'll be talking about, you know, the lore of what we do and, uh, you know, and hit records that we played on, things like that. So that's, that's kind of like the new thing for me. Uh, eventually, I'll get into a fishing, cooking show, maybe a barbecue show, a philosophy show. Who knows? You know, Who knows? I'm, You've got the beard, right? And of course, bass lessons. I mean, that'll be the next thing after I get all this guitar stuff on. Then I'll do bass lessons because I play both instruments mm -hmm. equally well. But I don't try to sell them at the same time because it, it confuses people. Because right. they know he has one or the other, you know. Right on. I want to. I want to make sure I get that right because I want to get those uh, links into the show notes for folks so they can click through and, and check it out. My regular website is just kennyleelewis.com, all one word. Okay. All righty. And uh, what? I mean, what other? You got any other cool new project? I think I heard at one point you were you were working on some sort of book at one point. I have a novel on on Amazon. It's called uh, Skeleton Dolls. I wish I should have a copy here. Uh, Skeleton Dolls, Children of the Tower. It's kind of a sci-fi fantasy book written in the sense of like a Stephen King slash Dan Brown kind of book or something. Yep. It's uh, pretty cool. It it was based on a true story. I've always been a writer. I I, I even wrote a, a movie script back in the 90s. Uh, but I've always written and um, I've always written songs, of course. But I started writing novels uh, around this time, and I, I met this twin, and she was fascinating. And then I met her twin sister, who was identical, and they were so identical, and they were so lovely. It was like kind of breathtaking to meet mm -hmm. these. And then I met the mother, and they she started telling me stories about what they were like when they were little, and they spoke in twin speak. And if you Google twin speak, uh, you'll find out that's a real thing that twins actually sometimes talk. In their own language when they're very little and no one knows what it is it's kind of like speaking in tongues in church you know and it's like many bulk them they speak real fast and nobody can understand what they're saying but they but they understand it and of course they have telepathy and all this other stuff going on so the mother started telling me these stories about what these twins were like when they were little and it just made the hair on my arm stand up and i went like can i run with this can i can i make this into a novel if i just change the names and she said yeah go ahead and i got permission from the family and so uh, the first 10 chapters are a true story, which is pretty funny. And then it goes off and then it goes off into, you know, them using their languages for their adult life. And if, if we find out it has power and what we find out is that it's actually the original language of, of God. If you go into the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament, it talks about how everybody at one point spoke the same language prior to the Tower of Babel. And when you talk about Noah and Abraham and Enoch and, you know, Ezekiel and all these people, they, it all, they always say, and, and God said, and he answered. And it was like, you know, when he told Noah to build the ark, he didn't just come into his mind and like start encrypting. He just spoke to him and said, you know, make it 50 cubits. What's a cubit? You know, it's like uh, they spoke, they had conversations. I didn't make this stuff up. It's in the Old Testament. So we find out that this language that the twins are speaking is actually that original language, which has been suppressed by the church. Because the last person to use it was Merlin during the Middle Ages, you know, because he was Celtic, you know, a warrior and a, a magician, whatever, um, you know, a holy man. And he used these incantations with that language because they had power. And when the church found out that it was real, they suppressed it because they didn't want anybody else having that kind of power because only Jesus, of course, could have that Lazarus power to raise the dead and mm -hmm. make miracles. Well, if we all 
got inside ourselves, again, with an Eastern religion mindset, and we also use this, this language also sung in a particular melody because there's frequencies like with crystals that are involved with the singing incantations that go with this language that has power. So that's what these twins use in this book of mine called Skeleton Dolls. <laughs> and it's available on hardback and also, uh, uh, you know, Kindle uh, on Amazon. And Children of the Tower is the, sec- the first book. It's a trilogy. I've already written the second one, which is called uh, um, Lessons of the Grotto. But I'm shopping that now as a fresh new book. Because if you know, in the literary world, if you try to shop a book after it's been self-published, which is what I do with, did with the first book, they don't want to talk to you. So you can't self-publish it if you're trying to shop it. So right now I'm in the process of shopping that sequel. But the first book is available to everyone out there. And it's it's pretty fascinating. If you like sci-fi fantasy stuff, you'll, you'll love this book. It's pretty big, too. It's about 460 pages. And uh, it's a doozy. But I have not had any negative reviews. Uh, unfortunately, I've had no major reviews because, like I said, I can't get an agent to get taken to a publisher or get in a review because it's been released already. Right. So you just have to make your own uh, judgment on it. But if you read the reviews on Amazon, you'll see that everybody really likes the book. No, I'm definitely have to check that out. My uh, my wife and I will both uh, will both get into a book like that. Absolutely, man. I, you know, Kenny, I definitely appreciate you coming in and hanging out with us. Uh, any final words for any of our dark horses out there, given your experience in the business and music? Well, I mean, other than the diamond story that I related, I mean, yeah. you just have to, as an artist, if you if, if there was a musician listening, and I always try to teach this to my students, um, you're going to have to learn all the facets of entertainment also on stage. I mean, you can't just play. You've got to move. You've got to entertain. You've got to smile. You've got to sing. If you If you just learn how to sing in tune, you'll add a zero to your paycheck. <laughs> and, you know, because in the Steve Miller band, I don't get paid to play my instrument. He could get anybody to do that. I get paid to sing because we don't have any backing track. We sing everything live in that band. And you got to sing and you got to sing in tune. We do vocal warm-ups before and after. You know, I mean, after, before sound check, after sound check, before we go on stage, we're always tuning up our instruments. So that's really important. Buy some good clothes. You know, look at right now. I look like crap because I'm just doing my COVID thing right now. But, uh, you know, you got to look good and you got to, you know, you got to get along with everybody. You know, you can't go on a tour bus and just expect to be a little prima donna. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to, it's, it's like a, it's like a social environment. Everybody has to get along. You have to take everybody's feelings into consideration. So it's the, about the hang, you know, about 95% of getting into a successful uh, musical ensemble, especially a touring group. It's just the hang. You got to know how to hang. If you can't hang, nobody's going to want to hang with you. I don't care right. how, you know, so that, you know, and just learning all the different facets of the music industry, as I illustrated earlier, I think are some of the best things I could share. Absolutely. I definitely appreciate it. Kenny, thanks so much for hanging out with us, man. Yeah, Tracy, I really appreciate it. All right. There you have it, my Dark Horse friends and family. You could say the Joker himself dropping rock and roll knowledge bombs on us. Why did, what ideas resonated with you? Hmm? Let me share uh, like four of them that I got. Uh, thought number one. 
Learn and hone your craft. Now, Kenny told his story of spending the summer of 66 teaching himself to play guitar in his friend's bomb shelter, cranking up their guitars to the 45 records of their time. Now, he continued to hone his craft through high school, into college, and beyond. I want to dive a bit more into this in episode 208 on Tuesday. Excuse me, on Wednesday in episode 208, we're going to chat about the eight key steps to mastering your craft. Thought number two, learn from pirates, not just mainstreamers. Early in his musical journey, Kenny was influenced by all the mainstream artists that we all heard. Well, maybe not all of you, but some of us heard on the AM airwaves way back in the day. But then came the pirate radio channels, where we were able to hear a whole new set of sounds, sounds that were not being played on the mainstream AM and FM stations. Those new sound stylings had a huge influence on him, his stylings, and his play. Today, you know, you and I, we're all lucky enough to have the internet at our fingertips and can easily access an array of stylings with just a click. Are you tapping into that? Or are you following the zombies of the mainstream? Now, Tuesday in the Facebook group, I want to share some thoughts and ideas of how you can tap into radio, pirate radio stylings, all right, to help avoid being just another cookie cutter type of entrepreneur, help you stand up, stand out, and even shout it out loud. <laughs> little rock and roll humor there for you. Thought number three, give your best stuff for the great opportunities. Now, Kenny shared his story of sending his newly cut demos to Steve Miller, which we now uh, evolved him to him becoming a touring member of the band. But sending someone your best stuff, right, without them paying for it, is that wise? Well, in my humble opinion, I would say yes, right? And I'm sure Kenny would agree because it actually worked out well for him. And it's like I have said many times on this podcast and just about everywhere, everywhere else, Put your best stuff out there. Heck, even give it away for free. They, believe me or not, they will come back and pay you for more of you. And here's the thing I find is that when you put your best stuff out there, so many people are like, man, this is amazing stuff. But only about 1% of them are really going to take action on it. They need you. They need you to hold your hand. You know, so put your best stuff out there. They will come back and pay for more of you. It seems a bit ironic, right? Eh, well, maybe, but it works, as, it do, as does a few other of the ironic rules of business, which I want to discuss with you on Friday in episode 209, Six Ironic Rules for Success in Entrepreneurship. Thought number four, take your success into a new space. Kenny became very successful as a studio and session player in Southern California. He was doing quite well for himself and his family. He was going so well, you could say, you know, I, I base this on the fact that he mentioned he had to be gone, uh, movie contracts. He was doing movie soundtracks. Then came that opportunity to tour the Steve Miller band. It was a big decision. He said so himself. Now, you could stay where you are, where you're, you're successful. It's not a bad thing. Or you could take your success into an entirely new space. Well, lucky for us, us music fans anyway, Kenny joined the band and still tours with them to this day. Well, not right now with COVID, but hopefully, as you heard him say, they're going to have some things coming out here soon. I believe in September. 
But imagine all the amazing music we would not have gotten if he had stayed in the studio only, right? Are you staying in the studio with your gifts and your skills? Hmm? Thursday in the Facebook group, I want to talk about and share some ideas and some tips on marketing yourself, maybe even in a new industry, so that you can shine bright like a diamond. All right, now what ideas or inspiring thoughts resonated with you? Whatever they were, I want you to take some time and write them down, right? It's very important you write these things down. Then get out there, run your race, get your results, and let me hear about them. Seriously, you can email me at tracy at darkhorseschooling.com, share the tips or ideas that you came away with, how you put them into action, and what results you gained from them. Tell me all about them. Heck, probably even bring you on the show so that you can share your successes with the audience. Now, next week, oh man, next week we've got Jason Milan. Now, Jason is a wealth mentor and he's spent the last 14 years helping service businesses understand that language of money and manufacture financial freedom for themselves and their families. Uh, he has successfully helped over 1,000 clients build in excess of $1.4 billion with a B in combined wealth and he has scaled multiple seven-figure businesses. He's a master of health business owners make money for themselves and turn their business profits into personal wealth. You're not going to want to miss this one. Jason is fire and he's going to be coming to us from the outback because he has taken the time to go traveling around the country for a whole year so he can enjoy the fruits of his labor. That's what it's all about right there. By the way, One last thing, if you're looking for some help with your podcast, whether you're looking to launch one, you already have one, and you're looking for help with the editing and promotion, or if you're looking to monetize that bad boy, then reach out to me again at tracy at darkhorseschooling.com, or you can go to darkhorseschooling.com backslash coaching. Let's chat. I will make sure that when you walk away from that chat, that you'll come away with a success plan. Again, that's darkhorseschooling.com backslash coaching. Let's see how I can be of service to you in helping you start, restart, or kickstart your business or podcast. Now, I know you need to keep getting all these valuable tips and these inspirational stories from the guests I'm lucky enough to bring on. So please go on down there, hit that subscribe button while you're there, drop us a five-star rating, share us a quick few words in the reviews, give us some kind words, ask a question. Maybe there's a question you'd like to have asked to Kenny Lee Lewis. I'll get it over to him and we'll either bring him back on. Heck, maybe we can get him to answer it on the show one more time, right? And of course, as always, do not keep all this entrepreneurial G-O-L-D all to yourself. Share this podcast with other entrepreneurs and business owners that you know would get value from it. And with that, I'm going to leave you as I always do. Think successfully and take action. Thank you for listening to the Dark Horse Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Check us out at www.darkhorseschooling.com. All right. My name is Tracy Brinkman.